Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we're doing something a little different today, which is exciting. We're covering a movie that still might be in theaters by the time this comes out. So this is record timing for us. Yeah, (laughs) but timing is actually really, really good. And we're going to explain why. Absolutely. So we're covering Scream 2022 or Scream 5 otherwise known as Scream. So we're pulling from the Halloween handbook of requels right now. Elise and I both saw this in theaters this past weekend. And let me just say, at least I had a blast, but I think we both had a blast. Yes, it was my first scary movie experience in a cinema and I feel really good about it. And it was actually, I mean, it was an emotional roller coaster. Definitely more of like an emotional journey than I might have been anticipating. So it turned out not to be the terror that was the hardest part to get through. So, And this was super special to me because I've mentioned before on the pod that the Scream franchise are some of my favorite horror movies. And you may be confused because we haven't covered any of the Scream movies on our podcast, but we've actually talked about the Scream movies at length in a different spot. So you may remember from our Cam episode a couple months ago, we had Charlie and Darby from Quim City Productions featured on our podcast. And we were actually featured on their podcast as well, which they covered all four Scream movies that had been out at that time. And they have just released that Scream Timber special episode. And although it's not on our page necessarily, make sure that if you haven't already that you had to Quim City Presents on your streaming platform of choice. I know that for sure they're on Spotify. I've never looked for them on a different platform, but I'm sure that they have availability on different platforms. And right now we're in their most recent episode. And in case they put something out in between now and then, the title of the episode is Quim City Presents the Horror Show, Scream Featuring the Horrors. Yes. So we had such a blast with them talking about all four of the first Scream movies, the first three coming out in like the 90s-ish, and then the most recent before this coming out in 2011. And for those who may be unfamiliar with the franchise, Scream is a set of very referential horror movies that are aware that other horror movies exist. I think if you're listening to this episode, you've at least seen one of them or you've seen them spoofed in the scary movie movies. But I would definitely recommend watching at least the first Scream. I would recommend watching all of them, honestly, because we're big fans of the Scream franchise here. I do think you can go see the new Scream, Scream 5, or just entitled Scream 2022 and not have some of the backstory and you can still enjoy it. But at the length that we're going to discuss it and some of the things that we might be referencing, I would definitely recommend either listening to that episode or just taking the time and watching the movies. I'm sure they're all over you know, streaming platforms right now because they are so smart. They're so funny. It's a real good slasher franchise. And let me just say, I nerded the fuck out in the theater just watching some of these Easter eggs and some of these references come to light. And Scream 5, the most recent one, really takes on the idea of a requel. So something very similar to what Halloween 2018 did, where they try to create a sequel or reboot a franchise years later and bring in some new blood, some new cast, and try to like revive the franchise. And I think with the new cast of characters, they definitely have the means to do so. I'm excited to get into it. And this was so much fun. And I would definitely recommend going to see it before listening because we're going to spoil the shit out of it. Okay, so episode today is going to be a little bit different format-wise. 
Because Shane, I usually have meticulous notes that help us stay on track as we revisit the plot of whatever movie or movies we discuss. We don't have that this time because we saw these things in a theater. And although Shay saw this movie twice, <laughs> I only saw it once. So our knowledge of this play-by-play, you know, isn't as in-depth as it usually be. So this is going to be a little bit more rough today. We will still be going in order, but more so just kind of chatting about our thoughts of the movie. There will be spoilers, many spoilers. So if you're hoping to listen to this and still go see the movie and be super surprised, don't do that. Evacuate the dance floor. <laughs> but by Cascada. Yes, by Cascada. Let's go. But if you have seen the movie, this will be a nice sort of recap. Or if you're not interested in seeing the movie or you're like me and spoilers don't ruin your experience in the horror genre, maybe you prefer spoilers for your own sanity, then yeah, stick around. We'll take care of that for you. All right. So something that's pretty common in the screen movies, as to many slashers, is the idea of a cold open. And usually a cold open is signified by the killer kind of being introduced, right? You kind of see them for the first time. You sense that there's going to be action. And a lot of time, the person that is killed has a sense of separation from our main cast. So in a lot of the screen movies, you know, you have Casey Becker in the first one. In the second one, we have Maureen and her boyfriend in the movie theater. Goes on and on and on. So following the formula, we have a girl alone in her kitchen. She was very heavy in a lot of the trailers. She's played by Jenna Ortega, which, Elise, you said you know her from You Season 2, right? Yes. I knew I recognized her from somewhere when I was in the theaters, but I could not place her. But yes, she is from season two of You. And also kind of plays, a, I would say, a similar character in this movie. Very much victimized <laughs> by people around her. And is way too young to have to deal with that bullshit. Yes. So this is very reminiscent of the opening scene of the first Scream. You have girl alone at night texting friends. Her landline's ringing. No one wants to answer the landline. When she does answer the landline, it's a stranger who claims to be a friend of her mom's. They get into some quippy dialogue about horror movies, which is very reminiscent, again, of the first one until the conversation becomes more threatening. And she comes to find out that a friend of hers who she's been texting throughout the night is in danger. And if she doesn't answer his trivia questions correctly, then her friend will be killed. And a lot of these trivia questions have to do with a franchise called Stab, which is within the Scream movies. So we have Scream, which is the actual movies that we are watching. And then we have Stab, which is a franchise that exists in the Scream universe that is made in reaction to the events of the Scream movies. So it's making fun of the idea that when tragedy happens, people make movies about it. So when Sidney Prescott is attacked in the first movie, there's a movie made about her attack and it turns into a slasher franchise. So he's asking all of these questions about the Stab franchise. And it's very meta because we're watching a horror movie that's aware of other horror movies existing. And she's answering questions about a franchise, so on and so forth. You get my drift. And, you know, they're kind of playing cat and mouse with these questions for a while. And then through some miraculous hoodwinkery and technology, our girl, her name is Tara. She is attacked by the ghost face killer and presumably... Especially with a lot of the ways that she's attacked. She's stabbed through the hand. Her ankle is broken. She's stabbed multiple times. Just as the cops are arriving up, Ghostface lifts the knife, plunges down one more time, thinking that this is going to be the, you know, the usual cold open that we see. What were your thoughts on the opening? 
there were a couple things about the opening that stood out to me. One of the reasons Tara is forced to pick up the landline is because she sent a video of her friend Amber, like brushing her hair, getting ready to go over to her house for, you know, to hang out while Tara's mom is away. And it was very reminiscent of the kind of technology that we started to see come about in Scream 4, which I thought was interesting. Always the Scream movies are kind of adapting to the new ways of communication. So I thought that those elements were realistic. I appreciated like the humor of like the hatred of the landline and also, you know, the relevancy of videos. Also the through the hand stab reminded me of, I always want to say hide and seek. Oh no, ready or not. When we had our main character in that movie at one point, she like fallen through sort of a door in an outdoor barn. And as she was trying to like climb up, she put her hand through a rusty nail and I don't know. I immediately, I saw that scene and I thought of ready or not. So right away, things were happening that I felt like my mind was spinning. And but you know, what's so interesting about you bringing up ready or not. What? This movie was directed by the same people that directed ready or not. Stop. Yes. Radio silence <laughs> were the people that took on the revival of this franchise and they are best known for ready or not. Their kind of directorial, I don't know if it's their directorial debut, but it's one of their like market successes. So it's so funny Mm -hmm. that you like saw that parallel and it's like, yeah, I guess they really must like hand stuff. (laughs) Yeah, like the tears of most well-known for ready or not and stabbing through the hand. (laughs) Okay, interesting. All right. I feel like that's something I have noticed about horrors. You notice things that you think might just be kind of a mindless comparison, but in the horror genre, sometimes they end up meaning something like patterns between directors and things like that. Awesome. Very cool. And I also like really appreciated now that you said that it makes me think of, you know, we had mentioned before that in this conversation, Jenna Ortega's actress, Tara, while she's on the phone with the ghost face, name drops a lot of movies like It Follows in the Babadook and uses that kind of has like, I don't watch that slasher shit. I watch elevated horror, which is a term that's contested among horror fans where it's like elevated horror is supposed to be horror movies with elevated social themes and cues. But it's also the idea that like, Horror movies kind of always had that, but people just like to schlock it out to blood and gore. But since these things are just a little more on the nose about what they're trying to say versus something that's a little more subverted with blood, guts, monsters, gore. So I liked that they were kind of recognizing that there is a generation of horror fans that kind of denounces what this genre even represents, but they're still participating in it and they're still like not getting it and still following the rules. They're so aware of the rules and they're so aware of the themes and all that kind of stuff, even if they claim to not really respect the origins, if that makes sense. Right, right. And I I thought of myself too, when she was talking about her interest in elevated horror, because I am one of those people who's like, ooh, gore, ooh, this, ooh, that, but ooh, the witch, how artistic. So I felt very much, <laughs> mm, let's reflect on myself and, you know, the genre, the, the founding fathers, the founding mothers, the founding mommies and daddies of the genre, <laughs> and the importance of them. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so we move out of that cold opening. We're in front of a bowling alley where we meet who is soon to be known to us as our sort of fine, not really final girl. There's a lot of women in this movie, which is awesome. And Sam Carpenter is played by Melissa Barrera. She's also known from In the Heights. And she's outside 
chilling from her job. She's met there by her boyfriend, Richie. She makes some joke about taking his boner pills. They laugh. They do a little make out. All right. They're dating. They're together. She gets a call. It's Wes Hicks, who is a character that we're introduced to a little later. And he informs her that Tara was attacked. Girl from the cold opening is Sam's little sister, but she's alive. Plot twist, very different from these cold openings we're used to. So Sam's like, I got to go home. Richie's like, I'm coming too. Sam's like, you don't have to. He's like, but I'm going to. And it's like, all right, bare minimum, Richie, bare minimum. And then they go ahead and drive back to Westboro, where these murders are once again, Woodsboro. (laughs) Westboro Baptist Church. They're going to go to Westboro Westboro Baptist (laughs) Church. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus Woodsboro, where these murders are taking place again. And this scene does a little bit to establish a couple things very quickly. There is a joke about boner pills, but Sam is actually taking antipsychotics, which is what you, you find that out a little bit later. So we've, oh, yeah. established, so we've established this. It's like, okay, we got some mental illness going on. It's also very suspect to get a call from your sister's friend that your sister is in the hospital. So this is telling us a couple different things that Sam and Tara don't have the best relationship, which is revealed very soon after this. And that there isn't a lot of parental supervision at all throughout the movie. And that's something that's pretty hallmark of slashers in general and the screen movies is that parents kind of don't exist. It's all kind of all about the teens and all about like the central characters. But this makes it seem that Sam is removed, perhaps by her choice. And Richie's kind of like her main support system. So while they're en route to Woodsboro, we are introduced to the crop of new teens that are going to carry this movie forward. And this is where we get a lot of names and you guys don't get the faces because you're listening. So I'm just going to rapid fire, go through some of our main characters and maybe who their archetypes are. So we're at a picnic table where it is being announced that due to violence in the community that school's canceled and they're enacting an early curfew, very reminiscent of the first movie. This is where the first Easter egg that I didn't catch the first time, but I read online and then caught it the second time that the person who is actually on the announcements is Drew Barrymore, who is Casey Becker in the first (laughs) one. So I'm like, holy shit, it's her voice. It's totally her voice if you're listening for it, but I just thought that was awesome. But you have Wes Hicks. He is played by Dylan Minnette of 13 Reasons Why fame and also The Wallows. It's a good band. Go listen to them. And he's playing the son of Judy Hicks, which is one of our three returning ladies. She was a deputy in the fourth movie. Now she's a sheriff. We have Amber, who was the person that Tara was texting. She's played by Mickey Madison. She's also in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She seems to be like the most staunch defender of Tara and the most outrage of that what has happened to her. I've heard in a couple different circles that Tara and Amber are actually supposed to be girlfriends. And in early drafts of the script, they were supposed to be in a relationship, but it does not come through in the movie to me. I don't know if you disagree. No, I didn't even think as best friends that they had very good chemistry. So I didn't pick up on anything romantic between them, but that's interesting. You could tell that she's the most protective, but definitely not in a romantic sense. I guess like you can maybe, I can't remember if I felt this, but thinking about it now, like you 
might have picked up on perhaps Amber might have had some kind of crush on Tara just because she was so protective. And it was a dark contrast with her, the rest of her friends. Like, of course, they were still nervous and fearful. But, you know, when Sam came back around, her friends were like, you know, this is great. This will be great for Tara, even though that they've had this strained relationship. And even Amber wasn't pleased about that. So maybe you could pick up on it there, like some undertones, but nothing that was obvious. And then we also have the twins, Chad and Mindy. Mindy is played by Jasmine Savoy Brown and Chad is played by Mason Gooding. And then we have Chad's girlfriend, Liv, who is played by Sonia Amar. And this is kind of our titular group of friends. This is Tara's friend group. So obviously Tara is not present, but the five of them are talking about what happened to Tara. And this is very reminiscent, again, of the first movie where they kind of take time establishing what happened to Tara, talking about it, and then accusing each other. (laughs) Because that's what people in Woodsboro do when their friends get assaulted is they start to accuse one another. Yeah, it would be weird, except every movie does it. (laughs) So it's just like part of what's normal there. Also, isn't it funny how over time the stereotypes have changed? (laughs) Like stereotypical characters you see in movies, like based on, you know, how culture has changed. I love that. I think that's so cool. And I love the twins. I think the twins are two of my favorite characters that are introduced in the newer screen movies. Just, I don't know. I thought they were fun. And I love that they're twins. (laughs) And I just like their juxtaposition because I think it's very purposeful that Mason Gooding, who is a very muscular athletic type, is a football player. His name is fucking Chad in the movie because, of course, it is. And then Mm -hmm. Mindy is this like feminist, queer coded, free spirit type. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And they're like very much a ladies lady. (laughs) Absolutely. And they like. They like balance each other out so well, but they're not at odds. You could tell that they have a really good chemistry together, but even though like they're foils technically. And then, you know, Liv is kind of typecasted as our horror a little bit. Like she's definitely the most promiscuous in terms of the blocking, some of the costume she's like design. An, like an e-girl, an e-girl horror, you know? Yes. She has that kind of like darker element to her. And this, like. and this is amplified when we get our first red herring with the character of Vince, who is this greaser mullet wearing motherfucker who pulls up in his like T-bird and is like staring down this high school girl. And you could tell that he's like the mid 20 something that never left the hometown and they used to hook up. He's played by Kyle Gallner, who I really like. He was in the remake of Nightmare on Elton Street. He's in a lot. Like, if you look him up, he's in, like, a shit ton. And I think he was honestly underused in this movie because he's a really good actor. But that's kind of, like, our main crop, our main cast of characters. You have Wes, which is obviously a tribute to the late Wes Craven, who directed the first four screen movies. Wes Craven passed away when we were in college, I think, in, like, 2014 or 15, something like that. 2015, yeah. Yeah. You know, after we have some conversation with Sam and Richie in the car on their way, kind of establishing that the stab movies are based off of the events and we don't know why this happened to Tara. We are met at the hospital. And we've alluded to the scene a little bit previously, but Tara's recovering. She is awake. Sam is welcomed by Tara. You know, most of Tara's friends are happy to see Sam. You know, and of course, means a lot to Tara. Good to see big sister Sam. However, and we mentioned, Amber is not very pleased, does not trust Sam. 
But also Sheriff Judy is at the hospital and we see that Sam has a little bit of history getting into trouble when she was younger in Woodsboro. (laughs) So those two characters know each other and share some familiar banter with one another. There's a little bit of apologies that go on. Sam apologizes to Tara for leaving when I guess Sam was 18, which would make Tara maybe 10, 11, 12, 13, I think. 13. Because how I, old is Tara? Is she like a senior in high school? She's supposed to be like 18. Well, the only reason I know that Amber is quoted saying that Tara was eight and Sam was 13 when okay. the dad left. So that's about a six year difference. So if okay. we're presuming that Tara is a junior to senior in high school, let's just throw mm-hmm. her at 18. That makes Sam right. about okay. mid twenties, like 24 or so. Right. All right. That tracks. And she does say that she used to babysit all of those crop of kids anyway. So there is a significant enough age difference. Oh, yeah. But the next thing we see is a scene at a bar, which I don't, I don't know why they're in a bar, but they're in, but they're in a bar. And it's also like very much a dive bar. Like it's very much the bar you can tell a bunch of adults go to and have been going to for 25 years. So I don't know. Like it's, it's like the bar. It's like the bar for men. <laughs> the bar for men tm bar for men sounds like a sounds like a dove commercial (laughs) bar of soap for men (laughs) this scene pretty much just serves for amber to give an exposition dump that alludes to some of the details that we just went over right so tara was eight and sam was 13 their dad left the family and then pretty much as soon as that happened sam turned into a delinquent and started using drugs and then it's the second that she turned 18 she like ditched her mom and tara never looked back so we kind of get the root of some of that animosity of why amber isn't really the biggest fan of sam which would make sense if amber and tara were romantically involved it doesn't make sense when they're just typecasted as best friends but i'm seeing in so many places that they're supposed to be girlfriends that's not evident whatsoever but it would make Mm -hmm. a lot more sense as to where amber's animosity came from if there was a romantic link there so it's a big exposition dump a little sloppily done in my opinion but you know you got to get the backstory somewhere and kind of sow some distrust into sam's character so far and then we also have a confrontation between vince which is our older grease ball and chad the football player over live because Vince tries to catcall Liv and it turns into some kerfuffle and everyone gets kicked out of the bar. (laughs) Kerfuffle. Kerfuffle. But then (laughs) we get our first kill of the movie when Vince is peeing up against the wall of a bar. His high beams turn on, which I just found so funny that the asshole of the movie has very fluorescent high beams because I just think that's a general Mm. rule across society. Turn your fucking high beams Mm -hmm. down. Thank you very much. And this is our first instance of Ghostface getting a kill. But the only thing I don't like about this sequence, I think it's well done. I think the soundtrack is really good. The song they play is really good. The way that he dies is really good. But it's framed as a bad dream that Sam wakes up from. But it is a very real Yeah. This is where Red Right Hand comes back for the first time in the movie, right? Yes. Okay, that's fucking sexy as hell. Okay. There was also this moment, which I liked, where Vince kind of creeps his way back to the car to see what the fuck is going on. And by the time he gets there, his car is turned on and the lights are on, but no one's in the driver's seat, which I thought was kind of creepy. I liked that little twist because, you know, you know that there's going to be a kill that happens. It's just it's written all over all of these like subliminal messages. But I liked that nobody was in the car and the kill didn't really happen the way that I originally thought it was going to. But... 
Yeah. So then he dies. He just gets like stabbed in the throat, like super fucking quick. It's like, ding, ding. (laughs) Like that's what it feels like. (laughs) That was the actual sound effect in the movie too. I don't know how you got it so perfect. (laughs) Actually, I was the one that recorded the sound effects. (laughs) (laughs) If you look in a corner in black and against a black background, Elise is credited with that sound effect in the background. Yeah. But when I saw it in theaters, I actually was like, <laughs> like I, I had a little laugh. It was just so fast. It was just, it was just different. It's just different. And also maybe they did that on purpose because this was supposed to be this like hyper masculine character. And he was like, twing, twing, like taken out like so quick with this stab to the neck. I don't know. It was the quickest stab, quickest stab award that I've ever seen in a movie goes to this movie. And you'll know what I mean. You'll know what I mean. If you see it, when you see it, you'll know what I fucking mean. Buckle your seatbelts. So yes, Sam wakes up. Richie is in the room watching the stab movies because he needs to prepare for some reason. Tara is asleep. Sam goes to the lounge in the hospital to clean to get something to eat, but is really to take her pills. And this is where we get the return of Billy Loomis Kind of. And for those of us who haven't seen the first one, Billy Loomis is one of the murderers in the first movie. And it kind of runs the theme throughout most of the sequels, except for the third one. There are usually two killers, then they are usually partnered and they have different motives for partaking in trying to kill Sidney Prescott. And Sidney Prescott has not been mentioned in this movie quite yet. So we're getting there. But Billy Loomis is one of our like OG killers and we see him kind of pop up in the mirror behind Sam and we realize that this is a hallucination because Billy Loomis has been dead definitively since the first movie he was shot in the head. And he is saying things very tauntingly kind of along the lines of when are you going to tell Tara why you're here and saying like, you know, you're the reason that this is happening to her and things of that nature. And we get another clear shot of the pill bottle. So we're guessing that these, you know, are antipsychotics of some degree. So we know that now that there's a connection between Billy and Sam, but we're not quite sure where it is. But this dream sequence or this hallucination is interrupted by a phone call from Ghostface taunting her about Tara. She's like, if you're ready, come and get it. And he does. And there's like a fight sequence in this break room. Sam escapes unscathed. Ghostface escapes. And then there's kind of a little meeting in the hospital room where people are blaming each other because the phone call maybe came from Amber's phone. But we know that Amber's phone had gotten cloned earlier in the movie. So is it her? But Richie was watching Netflix while Tara was asleep. So the alibi can't really be checked out. So it's like a lot of who could it have been? Sheriff Hicks is there and saying, well, it couldn't have been Amber because Amber was with me. And then Amber and Richie start going at each other. And it's just like a big whodunit type of situation. Well, can I just say during this hospital fight scene, I thought of you and your (laughs) discussion on our last episode about where the fuck is the hospital staff? (laughs) (laughs) When When we were talking about the orphan and all of that weird shit was happening. I thought of that very much here. I was like, where is the staff? Also, why is a civilian eating lunch in the staff break room? Like, aren't there like facilities for guests or visitors to eat? Anyway, (laughs) so I thought of you and, and had a nice little chuckle. I'm also trying to think of like what it must have looked like for Ghostface to not only enter the room, but exit the room in a hospital. 
Like you just see this cloaked figure kind of like running out the side (laughs) and like stripping down. And it's like, no one saw that. No one saw anything. Right. You could argue that about the bar too. Like no drunk person was like walking to their Uber and like saw this cloaked figure running around the parking lot. (laughs) No drunk person saw the ghost face mask and yelled, what's up? Like into the night at all. (laughs) (laughs) Like you do nice threads. (laughs) But again, we're playing by the slasher rules and slasher rules say that we have to suspend some belief here. Also, we have to suspend some belief that Tara and Sam's mother is stuck in London and will remain stuck in London for the rest of the movie. That's also fucked up. The excuse is like she's stuck at a conference. It's like they don't know how to characterize Sam and Tara's mom because... First, she's a drunk that spills all of her like secrets in AA meetings. And next, she's this accomplished businesswoman that is championing international travel and has work responsibilities that outweigh her daughter at the end of the movie, thrice being attempted murdered. Right. It's like, again, it's slasher rules. And that's not to say that people who are in recovery can't go on to do amazing things. It's more so that the movie doesn't know how to keep her away. Really? I think especially because of her history with Billy Loomis. I think that's a big part of it. Which we find out in another exposition dump. Yes, we do. Let's take a dump. (laughs) (laughs) So Sam reveals to her little sister that she left town because... When she was younger, she was up in the attic looking for Christmas presents, but she stumbled upon some of her mom's old diaries from when she was in high school, gave them a little read through, and then found out that her dad wasn't her real dad and that her mom had gotten knocked up by Billy Loomis, whom she was in love with in high school. But he had a girlfriend, a.k.a. Sydney Prescott. And mom had a boyfriend whom she ended up marrying after she got pregnant with who he believed to be his child. But we know because of these diaries is actually Billy Loomis's child, a.k.a. Sam. Sam went downstairs and confronted her mother, not knowing her father was in the room behind her. And then that very night is when her father left because of this unearthed lie. Sam stuck it out for another five years at home, getting into trouble. But as soon as she turned 18, that's why she skipped. And Tara was unaware of this the entire time. And again, I realize that we had to figure it out. And I understand that telling Tara, the person who doesn't know this, makes sense to be on screen. But we have seen the Billy flashback. Viewers are smart. I think they can put two and two together. And also, this is where I was like, why did you make Sam have a nightmare about Vince being killed? Which is a very real thing because we get a line from Sheriff Hicks saying, I first I got a body at a bar and now you're getting attacked in a hospital, right? So why is she dreaming about that? Why not have a dream sequence where you go back to her like seeing the diaries and maybe seeing a picture of Billy Loomis or seeing a sonogram. Like I just show don't tell, you know, and I realize that Tara has to find out, but it's still so ham fisted to me that I'm like, come on, please. I'm wondering how they even did that. Now that I'm thinking about it, did they, I I mean, the actor who plays Billy Loomis looked in these visions exactly how he did in the original movie. And I'm wondering, was that CGI? Were they pulling images from the movie and somehow making him 
just like say different things than he did in the movie, like by editing his mouth and adding like dialogue. Like how did they make him still look so young? They did bring him back. I know that he he did film for this movie. Really? And he still looked that sexy? <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think they just de-aged him a little bit. You can see a little bit of age in his face. He definitely doesn't look like the young Johnny Depp-esque that he looked like in 1996. Oh, they definitely de-aged, nice. de-aged him a little bit, but he did come back and film for this movie. So, okay. so mm-hmm. he like he's credited in it. But okay, okay, okay. okay. But but I but okay, I see okay. your but I see your point though. It's like they could have used like unused footage or something like that. Like they could have figured out a way. And again, that Tara had to find out somehow. So I get it. And this is me nitpicking. I loved this movie. And I don't know if I said that up top. We both loved this movie. That was just yeah, something that we both I love this movie. <laughs> yes. That was just something that I was like, you could have done that just like a little right. better. I read that this movie in general is getting really good reviews. So that's really exciting. Some people are saying that it's their favorite Scream sequel of all the sequels. It actually outpaced Spider-Man No Way Home for an opening box office really it did and that made me so fucking happy because horror is one of those genres that like people like but you know you don't see them winning like academy awards or best pictures or anything like that and this is like proving that it has staying ground and like it's good it has merit it's not just this blood guts gore torture porn shit like it's smart it's entertaining Mm -hmm. it's thrilling and it just makes me so happy not to shit on No Way Home. I'm just saying that, you know, people are kind of used to like the Marvel verse kind of taking over right. and being these like universally liked things. But this kind of shows that horror fans will hold the fuck out and show the fuck up when it's their time. And I'm happy to have bought two fucking tickets to this thing because I wanted to get the success. It, it deserves the success. That's so interesting, the idea that horror, and I feel like I'm just starting to experience this myself. And it's something that you've been expressing through the years and years that I've known you, which is horror for a lot of people brings with it strong nostalgia. And I can't really say I grew up with these movies because I only just saw them for the first time within the last handful of months. Already, you know, hearing about the success of the fifth one, having watched the four movies and and talked about them and heard about people who love these movies and grew up with these movies, truly. It is really exciting to hear about the horror genre doing well and appealing to that feeling of nostalgia and its viewers and how that genre, even though on the surface, it might not seem like it could have those warm, fuzzy feelings attached to it because of all the blood and guts and gore. You know, there's so much more to it. And I I don't know. It's really cool that it's just really cool. Even that's the thing, like, even if it was a little like cheesy, I liked seeing Skeet Ulrich come back and play Billy Loomis again. And obviously this movie wouldn't have been made without Nev Campbell and Courtney Cox and David Arquette coming back and reprising their roles. So I'm so happy that they saw something in this that they wanted to reprise their roles and they wanted to keep moving. And honestly, I think this is setting it up for a six, seven, eight. Like, I honestly don't think they're stopping here. In the stab universe within the scream universe, they are already on movie eight. (laughs) So the stab universe has surpassed the scream universe, which for a while was like head to head, but they're on eight. So I don't know. Maybe that's a prediction. 
And that's the thing you can look at, you know, the Friday the 13th of the world and the Halloweens of the world. Like some of those are on 1213 and they have like different timelines where certain movies don't count. And oh my gosh, like there's just so there's so much there. And there's a lot to poke fun of even as a fan, but it shows that it has staying power and people show up. So I'm glad that they haven't adopted a model that's very similar to what Halloween did, which was like pretend all the other movies didn't happen. Like I'm glad they're continuously building and becoming referential and hiding these Easter eggs in because it has staying power and all of them are like even so relevant. You know, I was born in 94. You were born in 95. And the first movie Mm -hmm. came out in 96. Like, obviously, when we watched the first one for the first time, I watched a lot earlier than you. But even though that we weren't growing up in that time, there's still so many things that we recognize even watching it today. And we're like, yeah, like I can recognize that. This is something that's valuable to me. And this is something that has staying power. And all of them have been like that. Except for maybe three, because three is kind of like the weird oddball out. But one of them always has to kind of (laughs) suck, right? Uh huh. Yeah. I feel like I was thinking today, I feel like the way the movies have gone for me has been very much like a a palabra, a palabra. Okay. Which if we think about, you know, math class in high school, the first one was so good. The second one was good. The third one was not good. The fourth one was better. The fifth one was really good. (laughs) So we really had this nice little dip going on. So (sighs) who says that you don't use algebra after high school? (laughs) What this background conversation does about the Billy Loomis is just kind of piss Tara off because Tara obviously feels very blindsided. She has some lines that I really appreciate. She's like, you think you can leave my life for five years and then come back and dump all of your shit on me? Like, that's not my job. Like, you need to get the fuck out of here and figure your shit out. So it's even kind of talking about the idea of, which I'm going to talk about this a little later, but like generational trauma. Obviously, Sam's trauma was different in the sense that She was having a lot of, you know, parental confusion because who she thought was her father wasn't her father and her father kind of cut ties once he realized that he wasn't her paternal father. But Tara has a lot of abandonment. So it's kind of talking about, hey, like you left and you left me here and you left me with a mom that ended up becoming an addict because of what you did, essentially. So they're both having like equal and opposite reactions that are both really valid. And I'm glad that it's not just Tara being subservient and being like, it's okay. And we get there later in the movie. But at first it leaves space for her to be like, I'm a victim here and I'm not here to comfort you because you weren't here to comfort me when I needed you. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily have to spell it out, but in reevaluating this scene, I kind of like the way that they left that. And none of the women in this movie are subservient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that point you made just had me reflecting on all the women here. They're all very badass, all very, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, active in their own destinies, I would say. Resilient. After this, essentially, Tara is going to get moved to a hyper secure floor on a private floor of a hospital, which I don't know how you get that kind of service. But I guess in Woodsboro, it's not that big where that can happen. So she's moved to a private floor and then Richie and Sam go off in search of our first legacy character, Dewey Riley. He is found in a trailer park and the first visions we see of him are sad, especially because he is such a jovial character in the first four movies. Mm. He's kind of like our unwavering positivity, kind of like our light in the first four movies. But you can tell that he's fallen on some hard times. He's mixing alcohol with his coffee in the morning. And we see that he is watching who we thought was his wife, Gail Weathers, on the New York News. And they were married, but now they're separated. So this is news to us. 
You could tell that he's a little disheveled. And Richie and Sam come to the door and ask if they can talk to him because she's the daughter of Billy Loomis. And he's like, nothing makes me want to talk to you less than you saying that. Yeah. Red flag city. But essentially, this is kind of where we get a restatement of the rules. We kind of get our rules set, which is very typical of a screen movie. You know, we had Randy for the first three movies to give us the rules of a slasher movie, a sequel, a trilogy. And then, you know, we have some rules of a reboot that I think is given by either Jill or Charlie or or somebody in the fourth movie. And this is where Dewey delivers the rules. And the rules are pretty much one, never trust a love interest. They seem sweet, caring, supporting. And then welcome to act three, where they try to rip your head off. So obviously Richie takes great offense to this. The second Uh is that the killer's motive is always connected to something in the past. So obviously we have the Billy Loomis connection. You know, we're talking to Dewey now. He's from the past. And then the third rule is the first victim always has a friend group that the killer is a part of. Look for the killer there. If you find out why they're doing it, you can find out who's next. So this is where they try to say, listen, you've been through this. Can you help us? And he's like, I've been stabbed nine times. I have nerve damage. I'm not helping you. Goodbye. Get off of my property. But there's a lot of Easter eggs in this scene. One of my main complaints for the first four movies is that Dewey's younger sister, Tatum, is a victim in the first movie. She dies. And they kind of forget in the sequels that like Dewey's younger sister is killed by a ghost face. He kind of bounces back and becomes like deputy and then sheriff. And we don't really see her mentioned too much again, but we do see an ash box with Tatum's name on it. So that was a little nice, like nod and aside to that. And we also see pictures of Courtney Cox very much showing that he is not over his marriage. But after this conversation with the kids, he calls Sydney to warn her about the things that are happening in Woodsboro and tells her to keep safe and then texts Gail and tells her not to come to Woodsboro, but also hopes that she's doing well with a smiley face. Yeah, (laughs) that was so cute. (laughs) The theater I was in, we're all like, oh, (laughs) but yeah, so we see Sydney. She's doing really well. She picks up the call. She had just been on a jog with a baby in the stroller. And that's really cute. And she has that iconic line, which I'm pretty sure is in the trailer. When he says, do you have a gun? She says, I'm Sydney fucking Prescott. Of course I have a gun, which is pretty badass. And also funny because in our discussion with Charlie and Darby, the screen movies are the only slashers with guns. All of them have guns. Right. Mm-hmm. So a lot of things there. And again, this is just kind of proving to me that like Sydney is one of my favorite final girls, if not my favorite final girl, because she is never lessened for what she's mm-hmm. been through. Like, and that's not just because she has every reason to be. She has, she has every reason to kind of like be traumatized and have a very different life than she does. But, you know, she has a couple kids. She's gotten married. She's doing as well as you'd want her to do after, mm-hmm. you know, going through all the things that she's experienced. But I think a part of her also recognizes that this is part of her story. This is her life. And every couple of years, she's just kind of got to break out the leather jacket and go back to Woodsboro and knock on some doors and figure some shit out. But As far Mm -hmm. as we know, she's staying the fuck away from Woodsboro. And she says a line to Dewey about, 
they are so lucky to have you to protect them. And I believe Mm. this is the nudge that Dewey needs to be more active in the investigation. So we see him arrive at the Meeks house or the twins' house with all of Tara's friend group so that they can talk about what to do because Tara's friend group is where they need to look to see where the killer is. And this is where we find out that the twins are Randy's niece and nephew. Dewey comes back on the scene. Kids are glad to see him. And he tries to help them in the investigation to figure out who's who. And again, kind of instilling those roles and making sure nobody trusts each other (laughs) as they all love. This is my favorite comedic exchange in the movie because essentially you have Mindy talking about the rules of a requel and she's kind of giving different rules and talking about how you have to revive franchises with a certain way and how all signs point to Sam being the killer. And again, there's another scene of everybody starting to accuse each other of being the killer because this is what happens in a Scream movie. But you have Wes, he turns to Dewey and he's like, well, I think you're the killer. And he's like, well, why do you say that? He's like, well, your superstar wife left you to host a show in New York and you fell into a bottle. You know, you've been stabbed nine times. You're filled with like bitter resentment. Like, you know, what do you have to lose at this point? And he's like, well, maybe you're the killer because that cut deep. (laughs) That was like my favorite delivery of the entire movie. It was so funny to me. It was very dewy. Very dewy. Oh, (sighs) okay. So anyway, sorry, just just thinking about Dewey. <laughs> what happens after this? Is this, oh, they realize that Vince was Stu Mocker's nephew or something. They realize that the victims are related to the killers, the original killers. Yeah, pretty much what comes out of this is they realize that everyone that has been attacked or killed so far has to do with the events of the first Scream movie. So the events of the original Woodsboro killings back in 1996. And that's where they established that, like, you know, Mindy and Chad are fucked because they're related to Randy and Sam is the daughter of Billy Loomis. So who's to say she's not the killer? And you know, Wes is the son right. of Judy Hicks. This is where things start to highlight Amber and Liv maybe being a little more suspicious because they don't have those apparent connections quite yet. So then our next scene revolves around Sheriff Judy Hicks and her son, Wes. Judy is going to pick up sushi. So she leaves Wes at the house. He goes upstairs to shower and intercut with these different scenes. You know, we just know something's going on. Judy gets a call. It's Ghostface. He's telling her, I'm going to kill your son, essentially. Good luck getting home in time to save him. And this is just so depressing because Wes does make it out of the shower, even though for a little bit, we think it might be a psycho moment (laughs) when we might see his demise happen there, but he gets out of the shower and he starts setting the table for dinner, but Judy makes it home and she's running up to the house, you know, after having Colin reinforcements and she's running up to the house and Ghostface pops out and stabs her right away. She basically runs right into the knife. She gets stabbed a couple more times. She dies in her front yard, essentially. Wes is still inside getting ready for dinner. We hear a couple noises. And then he ends up getting stabbed as well. And this is pretty... Oh, this is a kill that has lingered on a little bit, right? Like Wes is stabbed sort of at an angle enough where we can see the knife go in and out of his throat. And the shot holds there for a while. It's pretty haunting. And I guess he's a victim, I guess, just because his mother is Judy Hicks. I'm not sure. Do you have like, what what do you think about that? This whole moment seemed a little bit out of my wheelhouse. I don't know. 
Yeah, I think pretty much it's because he's related to Judy. And that's still a little bit of a stretch because Judy was not introduced until Scream 4. So that is very interesting that she's kind of included in this main cast of Woodsboro Originals when she was introduced so late. And the actress had even said in an interview that she is the only new character that is introduced in a Scream sequel that makes it to the next sequel. So pretty much everyone that gets introduced in like two, three, and four either gets killed or just never comes back again. But she's the only person who does. And she's a big red herring in the fourth one. She's kind of positioned as somebody who could have been one of the killers, but she never was. So it is very interesting. I don't know if she was just kind of included for fan service because people liked her performance and kind of how creepy it was in the fourth one. And I also think it has something to say about the way that everybody's kind of reacted to the trauma. Like obviously Gail and Sydney have like left the premises. They left the chat. They left Woodsboro. You know, Gail went to New York and Sydney went to wherever the fuck she is, like not Woodsboro. Dewey kind of like fell into this bottle or whatever like that. And then you see Judy, who there's a lot of jokes between her and Wes earlier in that scene about her being like the overprotective mom. Like she is going down the street to get sushi and she's like, double lock the door. And she has even said before, like, oh, are you like protecting yourself? And just while he was out for a run, he like takes a taser and pepper spray out of his pockets, like to the point that my friends mock me. So I think it's just to maybe drive home the point that no one's safe. Maybe we thought she was going to be safe because she was not as central of a character as we thought she was going to be. But I think that knowing what we know about the killers now, I think that this was their way of kind of tying up some creative loose ends in their Mm -hmm. movie, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Okay. Okay. I also just thought of another slight theory, but I can't say it now because we have to figure out the ending. So hopefully I'll remember to come back to it. I might forget. (laughs) So we see Sam pull up to the scene of the crime. She's obviously very shaken by the sight of Judy and Wes's bodies being wheeled out of the house. And this is where we see Gail Weathers. She has returned to Woodsboro. And this is where we really see the growth in her character, I think, because in the first couple movies, Gail is ruthless to get a story. She will be as invasive as she needs to be, as crass as she needs to be. You know, Sydney is well known in the first movie for punching Gail in the face, for asking insensitive questions about her mom. But this is where we see Gail almost very maternally come up to Sam and is like, did you know them? And she's like, yeah. She's like, well, you seem like you're really having a moment. Like, are you okay? Do you need to talk? Like, and there isn't a camera fashion behind her. You could tell it's a very human connection that she's really trying to comfort her and tell her that it's okay. And I love that for Gail because Gail is such like a mega bitch for the first, like maybe (laughs) two or three movies. She Hmm. really grows and she really develops into this empathetic person who is still there for a story. She still has a cameraman, but who is going to, you know, stop first and ask questions later type of situation. So there's that scene, which I really liked. And then we get the reunion between Gail and Dewey. Yeah. And basically she initiates the conversation about what happened. I guess Dewey was the one that left Gail. He went with her to New York, decided it wasn't for him and left. And I guess the two of them haven't really shared words since. Obviously, we know Dewey is still very much in love with Gail. And Gail, based on her words, we can tell she's very much still in love with him. So we do have that, I guess, resolution there. 
And again, also something else that's very different from the Gale we usually see. Usually Dewey seems like the one that's kind of wearing his heart on his sleeve, but this time he's the one that's a little bit more closed off and Gale is the one that's like, no, the heck. (laughs) And to provide a little bit of background, you know, they get together in the first movie. I think they're married by the second or third movie. And it's really in the fourth movie that we find that Gail has really taken a step back from her journalism career so that Dewey could advance and become the deputy at Woodsboro. And you see her kind of, I don't want to say resenting it, but you see that she isn't in the space that she wants to be in her career. And she's kind of been sacrificing that to be with Dewey. And through the dialogue, we find out that, you know, she said, like, it was my turn. I did this for you, but you couldn't do it for two months for me. And he admits he's like, I couldn't hack it. Like, I couldn't be in New York. You know, I wanted you to be successful, but like, I couldn't leave Woodsboro. And it was, it's just, it is heartbreaking because it doesn't feel like something that's written for a script. It feels like something Mm. that would happen in a relationship where, you know, somebody made a sacrifice so that they could be with some person. But when that energy needs to get returned, it can't be. And Mm -hmm. it's, I don't know, like it is heartbreaking because you can tell the love is still there, but they just couldn't hack it. And ugh, mm, the energy there is just so like, oh, I know this is a moment where I was like, what am I watching? Am I watching a horror movie or am I like about to go into a post-movie depression at the end of this? Like what is happening? It's also like the most meta of the meta because Courtney Cox and David Arquette were married for 10 years. They have a daughter together. They're divorced today. Oh my God, what the? You didn't know that? They got married after meeting on screen. They were together for like 10 or 11 years and they got divorced. And this is the first movie they've acted in since they've gotten divorced. So the actual meta-ness of it is so crazy. I am speechless. I can't believe you didn't know that. There's so much I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, that's amazing. Oh, my God. Elise is crying. Wow. Or almost crying. I'm definitely like my face is a little bit warm. Well, (laughs) it's because of what's coming. Right. So this is where Gail also finds out that Dewey's not actually the sheriff anymore, that he retired because they had asked them to. So you could tell that whether it be his drinking or just not being able to get over Gail, like really affected his career in a negative way. And you could tell it breaks her heart too. But this is where Sam, still there, but like not with them, realizes that if all the cops in Woodsboro are here, then who is protecting my sister? So she and Dewey jump into the car and run off to the hospital. They're freaking out, not knowing if Tara is safe. And Tara is in the hospital. All the lights get cut off. She's hearing noises. And so begins a very like painful sequence where, you know, she's trying to lift herself out of the bed with this busted ankle and this busted hand. And she's trying to roll herself down this hallway in a wheelchair to safety. And she sees the one cop on the floor is bleeding out. She tries to look for the gun and it's gone. And oh my God, like I, this is probably like the most suspenseful scene, I think. What do you think? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the lights, the setting, the trauma. (laughs) It's just insane. So she rolls back to her room and tries calling 911. She hears somebody enter the floor. 
They enter the room. She smacks the shit out of them with a the phone, which is an Easter egg from the first movie because Billy accidentally hits Stu with a phone and Stu yells, you hit me with the phone, dick. But it's, it's like the same cord phone and she hits Richie. Richie is there to check on her because Sam had called him and had asked him you know, she had left him back at the scene of the crime, I guess. And she had asked him to like get to the hospital. Still suspicious that he got there first. But this is where Richie is attacked by Ghostface. He is slashed across the arm and very quickly disbanded by being knocked out against the door frame. And this is where Ghostface is seen skulking after Tara, who is wheeling away. Her hand is open and bleeding. She's sobbing. It's very hard to watch. She is terrified. And Ghostface is on the phone with Sam, who had called Richie to make sure that he had gotten there. And Ghostface is taunting her to make a choice between Richie or her sister, that she can only save one. And... Sam is being like, don't do this, like acting very, don't make me do this, don't make me do this. And Ghostface is saying outright, like, you're going to choose your boyfriend over your sister. Like, what kind of person are you? You're worse than I thought. Like being very insulting. He dumps Tara out of the wheelchair. It's very suspenseful. We think that Tara is going to get killed, but we find out that Sam had been talking and not making a decision so that they could stall an elevator at the end of the hall opens up and Dewey is able to shoot at Ghostface. Really great scene. The three of them, Richie, Sam, oh, the four of them, Dewey and Tara make it to the elevator. And before the door can shut, Dewey decides to go back and he's like, it's not over until you shoot them in the head. So we get into a little bit of slow motion. Three of them in the elevator, they're like, no, no, no. But he steps out, the door closes behind him, and it's just him and this unconscious-looking ghost face. And he walks down the hallway with his gun and raises it to shoot. And right before he pulls the trigger, his phone rings, he gets distracted, and Ghostface pounces at him. And is this after we realized Ghostface was wearing a bulletproof vest? It's not surprising that Ghostface is wearing a bulletproof vest, but Dewey had shot Ghostface like a shit ton, like in the abdomen yeah. area. And mm-hmm. Ghostface had fallen like back into like a trophy case almost. So we thought that they were disbanded, but that's where he's like, no, I have to, you know, I have to do it. I have to do it. It's a rule. You have to shoot him in the head. I know. But the ringing of his phone, which of course ends up being Gail calling him, uh, which makes it hurt even more, distracts him enough where. <laughs> Ghostface jumps up and stabs him in the back and in the stomach and lifts the Ugh. blades up and slices him fr- like all the way up. And that you can tell just by some of the blood that's falling out. And I was afraid that I had misled you because the one thing that Elise had asked me before this movie is like, do you see intestines? And I said, no, but I think you might see a little bit of intestines in this scene. Oh, I didn't see. I don't think I saw them. I was too busy, like looking at his face. Oh, the music. Oh, the swell of the music. Like, oh, like you just know, like this is it. Everything about the way this fucking scene was framed, like, you just know this is it. Oh, my God. It's so sad. I had a huge emotional reaction to this. It was horrible. I mean, like, we kind of knew, right? Like, we knew 
that the fact that Gail, Sydney, and Dewey had survived four movies and that they were making mm. a big return kind of meant at least, if not more, at least one of them wasn't going to make it out of this one. And I mean, it would be bold to kill Sydney Prescott. That's not to say that oh, it yes. can't that it can't happen, but it would be bold to kill Sydney Prescott. But everyone just I don't know about you. I just had a hunch. I'm like, and I yeah. think I think Charlie had said this on the last podcast too when we recorded with them. Like, yeah, I'm really afraid for Dewey. And mm-hmm. Dewey doesn't. He already make had it. so many fake outs over the years. I mean, he how has. many times can you cheat death? In the trailer, he has that line. Like in the trailer, he's like, it feels different this time. And you know, once that scene began, once he turned around and left the elevator, like you just knew. Like before it happened, you just knew. And you can tell that it's significant because even Ghostface was like, it's an honor before bringing the knives in even more and like sealing the deal. Like the fact that this person knows whoever is behind the mask, this person knows the levity of killing Dewey Riley. And they do. They kill Dewey and they do it. And it's devastating. That was the only word. Like Elise said, I had seen this movie twice. I saw it opening weekend and I also saw it this past weekend. In my initial review to Elise's, it's devastating. You need to watch it. <laughs> and yes. that was it. That's exactly mm-hmm. what I was referring to because I knew it had to happen, but it broke my fucking heart, man. And Dewey, he's just so fucking likable. He's just such a great character. It was, uh, it was awful. Especially to that, like, you know, they're leaving the hospital and Gail pulls up and in slow motion, Richie and Sam are holding Gail back and she's silent. You can't hear her because of the music, mm-hmm. but she's what you can tell she's wailing and she's inconsolable. And it's just so hard to watch her mourn her best friend like that, even oh, if they yeah. hadn't talked. And even if they were exes, like you could tell that they were meant to be together. She knows that it's him and that he died. But later we're in the hospital. Gail looks absolutely shell-shocked. Sam goes over and tries to comfort her and says, like, Dewey's the reason that my sister is alive. And Gail really has nothing to say to that. But this is where we enter mm-hmm. Sydney Prescott, who's back yes, in Woodboro. She heard the news. She has returned. <sighs> and of course, when Sydney comes on the scene, everybody feels a little bit better, right? She's just got that energy. Like, Mama Sid's here. It's okay. (laughs) We have another scene with Sam and Tara where pretty much it's just established that Tara forgives Sam for everything that happened and that she appreciates that she's here for her now. And Sam's like, we're getting the fuck out of Woodsboro. Like we're doing what no one does in this situation and we're leaving Woodsboro. So Richie, Sam and Tara go to leave and Sydney and Gail stop them. And like Sydney is very friendly and tries to be very like mentorship like and it's like, listen, this is my life. I have been through this more times than I can count. Like, let me help you. And she's like, I don't need your help. I'm going to protect my family and get my sister the fuck out of here. And it's surprising to me that like Sydney doesn't have a reaction to her being Billy Loomis's daughter, because again, like if we're setting this up in the lore, Sydney was dating Billy. The carpenter mother is dating another man that we don't know, and they were cheating with each other. And this is the product of that. But she is so willing to help the closest thing you're going to get to Billy Loomis. Mm. And she is so willing to still extend that hand and be like, I want to help you. I mean, if she already had to come to terms with the fact that he was a serial killer, I feel like having to come to terms with the fact that he has a secret daughter is like two steps below that. It's like, if I can process this, I can process this. 
I'm also seeing it from the perspective of like, if you weren't here, Dewey would still be alive. Like if you didn't rope Dewey in, he would still be alive. I would almost see it as the perfect opportunity to pass the torch and be like, this isn't my fucking problem anymore. This isn't my movie. Like get the fuck out of here kind of situation. But you can tell that Sydney is the character that's like, no, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you through this. But Sam is very unwilling. Sam is like, nope, I'm getting the hell out of Dodge. I don't need your help. Your story isn't my story. I'm going to leave. Sydney follows her to the car and is like really trying to persuade her. And she's like, no, I'm leaving. But upon them pulling away, Sydney reveals to Gail that she put a tracker on their car <laughs> and that they're going mm-hmm. to follow them to make sure that they're getting where they go safely. Mm-hmm. And while those three are in the car, Tara realizes that she doesn't have her inhaler. She needs her inhaler. And it has been established earlier that she uses an inhaler pretty regularly. And Amber is the only one that has her extra inhaler. After some commotion, Richie's really not a fan of this idea, but they decide to go a little bit off course, stop at Amber's house, pick up this extra inhaler, and then continue on their way out of town. So they stop at this house and there's a huge party going on, a memorial party for their fallen friend, Wes, which again, very similar to the first movie is like, why are we having a huge house party when there is a serial killer on the loose? <laughs> like, yeah. But, you know, they did it before they're doing it again. And of course, big house party, you know, shit's about to go down. Yes. And this is revealed to the audience You can tell pretty quickly the significance of this house, but it is also revealed through Sydney and Gail following them and tracking where they stopped that this is, in fact, Stu Mocker's house. And Stu Mocker, like I had said previously, is one of the OG killers in the first Scream movie, and his house is where all of the action took place in the third act. So the fact that we are like returning to this house is very significant for the franchise, and Amber now lives in it. So it's like, okay, like what the fuck is going to go down? So we have some typical party scenes. We have Liv and Chad making out. Liv wants to have sex for the first time, which is very reminiscent of Sydney and Billy having sex for the first time in the first Scream movie Mm. in the very same house. But Chad's the one who's like, nah, I'm not convinced you're not the killer. I'm going to pass on that. And it's very funny that like she storms off and is like, fuck you. And and he's like, you know what? That's a very valid emotional response. Like, I'm going to let you have that time (laughs) to process that. So again, like you just have this very mature way of going about things. Whereas like Mindy's getting high on the couch and watching horror movies, very similar to what her uncle would do. I don't know what else is happening. Like there's just party kerfuffle happening. Well, Chad goes, he gets a text from Liv, come find me. He tries to find her. He ends up getting attacked by Ghostface, stabbed a bunch of freaking times. And he's down. He's down. Later, Amber goes into the basement. Mindy follows. They have this exchange about, you know, you can't go into the basement alone. You have to at least ask somebody to go with you, right? Like this, I feel like more more than usual, like rules follow throughout the entire movie. And probably because this is the fifth one, right? There's been a lot of rules established at this point. There's still rising tension. At this point, it seems like Amber has beef with everybody. She's very suspicious of everybody. Mindy doesn't seem too phased. Again, she's getting high. She's hitting on girls. She is not fearful. Like she has so much game despite the circumstances. There's also a scene where Liv and Mindy get into it 
because at this point, Chad has disappeared and Chad is like Mm -hmm. bleeding out in the backyard somewhere. And Liv comes at Mindy's like, where's Chad? And she's like, where he went looking for you. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they kind of have this exchange where Liv's like, well, you think I'm too boring to be a killer, but what if that's my motive? Like, what if that's my disguise? do you feel afraid now? Like, do you feel afraid? And she's like, kinda, yeah. Like, like it's just this weird exchange where you can tell, like, they're trying to put some red herrings all over the damn place because we still don't know, like, who it's going to be because Liv is kind of absent throughout the entire movie. Like, we don't really see her a lot. She's the most absent of the friend group. But we've seen this happen in Scream 2 where... One of the killers Mm. is introduced in the first half of the movie, but then doesn't show up for the whole second act and then shows up at the end. And you're like, no, no, no. The second movie. Oh, that's the fourth one. That's the fourth one. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, Mm -hmm. that's the fourth one. But the Colkin kind of does the same thing where it's like, you're used Mm -hmm. to one of the killers kind of disappearing for half the movie and then being back and being like, it was me. And we're like, who are you? Like, that's kind of like, (laughs) it's always one of them that ends up happening. So this is her putting exclamation point of like, I'm still in this movie, bitch. Like, I could be the mm. killer. I'm not boring. People being suspicious. being boring is way worse. It's way worse than being a serial killer. <laughs> we can't have anybody being boring. <laughs> this is where the trio of Tara, Sam, and Richie enter the party. Richie, in a very dad fashion, shuts the party down and is like, Gen Z, get the fuck out of here. Leave the house, please. I'm saving your life. Thank you very much. I'm saving your life. Bye, 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 bye. Amber and Tara go to get her inhaler. Everyone's just kind of like off doing their own thing. Sam gets a call from Sydney Prescott saying like, you need to get out of that house. You know, someone wanted to get you there. That is Stumacher's house. And you have this really cool pullback shot where it starts inverting, where Sam realizes that they are actually in trouble and need to get the fuck out of the house. And this is where another iconic scene from the first one where Randy's watching the horror movie and is like, look behind you. You have to look behind you. You always look behind you. But you see Ghostface coming up behind Mindy as Mindy's repeating her uncle's lines from the first one. It's like, come on, look behind you, idiot. Come on, you got to look behind you. Meanwhile, like someone's coming up from behind her and she's attacked by Ghostface. She's stabbed a couple times. Sam is able to chase Ghostface off. Amber and Tara come running in and is like, what happened? Amber's trying to blame Sam for stabbing Mindy, but but Mindy's unconscious, so she can't defend her. And then Liv comes in with blood on her hands because she said that she found Chad in the backyard. Again, they're all accusing each other. And Amber starts going in on Liv being like, you're the killer, you're the killer. And she's like, I'm not the fucking killer. And then Amber pulls out a gun. She's like, I know. And shoots her in the fucking face. And we're like, whoa. Yeah, that was fucking, that was a lot. So obviously, you know, shit has hit the fan. Like, this is it. And the whole group splits up. And this is right at the point where Sydney and Gail finally arrive at the house. They've caught up. They get at the house, take a look at it. And then Amber runs outside, sees them, shoots Gail in the gut, and then runs back inside. So Gail has just gotten there and she's kind of down for the count. So Sydney has to go inside the house on her own to see what's going on. In this time, one of them ties Tara up. Tara's missing. Sam's looking for Mm. Tara. She ends up being tied up in a closet upstairs somewhere, but she has disappeared from the scene. 
And Richie and Sam end up in the basement together. And this is where Sam, for the first time, starts questioning Richie a little bit, remembering what Dewey had said about the love interest. And But mm. whereas he's trying to convince her, like, what if your sister was mad about you leaving for all of those years? And she set this up as a way to get you back and to get back at you. And she's been the perfect person in the hospital this entire time, like unbeknownst to anybody else. Everyone's paranoid, but she ends up pulling out a knife, holding Richie at knife point, being like, get the fuck away from me and leaving him in the basement. And then Sam goes to find Tara and goes to untie her, but then we see her hesitate. So we don't know if Richie's, you know, advice had gotten to her already. And then Sydney shows up. Meanwhile, Sydney, right? She gets a call from Ghostface. Obviously, Ghostface knows she's in the house. She's walking through. She's shooting through every door that she comes across. And she shoots through one of the doors and she hits somebody and it turns out to be Richie. But... Ghostface comes out of another closet and attacks oh. both of them at the top of the stairs. And Ghostface ends up throwing Sydney over the top of the banister. So she falls from like an entire Where story. there's a banister, where there's a banister, there will be a tumble. <laughs> Sorry, I totally cut you off because you said the banister and I was like the banister. Yes, it, it is very better. Watch out where it's like there's just a banister overlooking everything and Sydney mm-hmm. and Ghostface end up going over the banister together. Sydney lands straight on her fucking back. Oh, like backbreaker. Both of them are incapacitated. There's a loose gun. Sam and Richie are both trying to like scramble for this gun at some point. Sam ends up getting it. Richie comes up next to her is like, oh, like, I'm so glad. And then stabs her in the side. So Richie is revealed to be the second killer. It is Amber and it is Richie that have been the ghost faces throughout this entire movie. And looking back at it, both of them were really obvious, but the movie does such a good job, like red herringing you left and right that like you think it's a little too obvious that it's them, but then it does end up being them because all the calls came from Amber's phone. But we also know that Amber's phone could have gotten cloned. So there's that. And the fact mm-hmm. that Richie's like the newest person in Sam's life and, ha- and like doesn't know anybody else. But Richie reveals himself to be the other killer. We have the confrontation in the kitchen, which is reminiscent of the original Scream, where Billy and Stu took Sydney in the first place. They're back. Sydney's back in the kitchen at the hands of the killers. This is where it would have been valuable to to watch this two times. If I couldn't take notes the first time, it would have been nice to see it because this is like the part of the movie. I feel like every scary movie, I'm always at this part. Like I can't even keep up with what's going on because I am like, this is insane. (laughs) So Amber goes and brings Gail in from outside. Gail is still bleeding from the abdomen. We're also going to take an, an injury inventory because I'm going to make a gripe about this later. So at this point, Sydney has fallen flat on her back from a very high height. She is hurting at the very least. We have Gail, who has been shot in the abdomen. We have Sam, who has been stabbed in the abdomen pretty deep. So all three are incapacitated. They're kind of like hiding in the kitchen on one side of an island. And then you have Amber, who is in ghost face garb. Well, mask off, but still in ghost face garb. And then Richie on the other side of the admin. And this is kind of where they reveal their motive a little bit, which is very, again, reminiscent of any Scream movie. So they reveal that they're both stab super fans. So again, this movie franchise within a franchise. And they start to say that stab eight was the worst. And it, it's because they didn't think about the fans. They weren't about the fans. So Amber and Richie met on a subreddit after they both shared their dislike about the movie 
And Amber reveals that she always knew about Sam's connection to Billy because of her mother kind of being loose-lipped around town in AA meetings and things of the like. It was kind of like an open secret that Sam didn't know that as many people knew about, but apparently people did. And they pretty much reveal that they want to frame Sam as this killer because they think it would be an amazing arc to bring back the daughter of Billy Loomis as a much better ending to a stab movie than whatever stab eight was. And they connected with Richie over the subreddit. And then Richie at this point is like taunting Sam saying things like, wasn't that hard to find you in Modesto? Wasn't hard to fuck you either. Turns out being a liberated woman has oh. different meanings to different people or something like that. So mm. again, lots of slut shamey type of situation here. Mm-hmm. And he says something along the lines of, I even had you convinced your sister was a killer. Like, how good am I? And this is where Sam reveals like, oh, I untied my sister. And then the phone. (laughs) And as you can tell, this pisses Richie off. And Amber goes to try to find her. And Tara comes out from somewhere and beats the shit out of Amber with a crutch. After Amber is distracted and Richie is distracted, Sam takes this as an opportunity to go for Richie's gun. She bites him in his arm wound. She ends up running around and escaping. Richie chases after her. Amber incapacitates Tara very easily because Tara is broken every part of her body at this point. So she tosses her aside and Amber comes back in and starts taunting Gail and Sydney a little bit. She stabs Sydney in the abdomen. She's like, mm. you know, it's it's such an honor to do this as a fan, to be the one that kills Sydney fucking Prescott. Mm. She even taunts her and says, like, you've survived this many movies. You know, you really think you're going to survive this time. Then they end up ganging up on her. They hit her over the head with a bottle of vodka. They taunt her with a gun. This is where, like, Amber starts to backtrack a little bit. And we start to get a little bit more of their reasoning because... Up until this point, we're realizing that this is just a big case of fan fiction. And I think that's how you put it, too, right? Like, it's just like a lot of this just seems to be people wanting to write extreme fan fiction. Amber says something along the lines of, I moved into this mocker house and I started looking up things about it. And like, I just became radicalized. I was influenced. And this is like very much what, you know, they tried to do in the first one. It's like the movies made us crazy, like all that kind of Mm. stuff where she's trying to say like, listen, I just fell down a rabbit hole and I got radicalized. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. But you can tell that this is fake because she ends up trying to choke Gail out and getting the upper hand on that situation and being like, I killed your husband. I can't believe I get to kill both of you. Like, she's a sadistic little fuck. Sydney gets the gun. I think the gas on the stove had been turned on in all of the hubbub. So the shot ends up lighting the gas and then Amber catches on fire and ends up like burning horribly on the floor, which is pretty wild. This movie has a lot of pretty wild deaths in it. So assuming Amber's out of the picture, now we just have one killer left. Sam is fighting Richie. They're in the foyer. He's also saying all these awful taunting things about, you know, Dewey was right, never trust a love interest. And then we have another daddy hallucination of Sam's. She sees Billy Loomis. He's not saying anything this time. He's almost kind of like looking. It looks like kind of like under a curtain by the umbrella stand by the front door. He's kind of glancing over there. So she manages to reach over a knife that I guess had slid under in all of the hubbub. And she grabs it and ends up stabbing Richie over and over and over and over. Like almost like uncomfortably so. Like, of course you want Sam to be victorious. 
but it gets to a point where it's almost like, oh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what did you think? Yeah, well, she delivers this one liner and she's just like, well, you know what they say. And he's like, what? And she's like, never mess with the daughter of a serial killer, stabs him through the face and then stabs him over and over again, very viciously. And then he gives a weak like, what about my ending? And she pulls back his neck. Here it comes. And then like slices his neck open. So it's all very sadistic. And you can tell that she like likes it a little too much. And, you know, this is kind of like a thought I have about the movie in general. Like, is this moment fulfilling a prophecy? Mm. Or is it breaking generational trauma? Because her father is a cold-blooded killer. And, Mm -hmm. you know, by her standards, she killed for good. But Billy also thought he was killing for good. Like he thought that he was avenging Mm -hmm. his father because, you know, Sydney's, I'm saying this with heavy quotes, like Sydney Prescott's horror mom fucked my dad and made my mom leave me. And, you know, I'm going to get Sydney for this and all that kind of stuff. So it's like, is she killing on her own terms because she's killing for revenge or for retribution or for whatever it may be? Or is she fulfilling her family line? And like, is she like confirming what Billy wanted her to do? Because we do see one more vision of Billy at the end and the reflection of a cop car and he's like nodding in approval. So it's like, Mm -hmm. what way is this going to go? I feel like it sets it up so that it could go either way. It could really go either way. Like if she ends up sort of being an anti-hero or the villain I could see that very much happening based on the ending of the movie. Amber comes out for one more scare. As they do. As they do. Friday the 13th. (laughs) Sam shoots her in the face, shoots Richie in the face. They're both definitively dead at this point. Sam thanks Gail and Sydney as they're sitting in like the bay of an ambulance. Chad and Mindy both survive and give each other a weak thumbs up. That was a nice little surprise. Apparently, Chad was supposed to die, but the directors liked him too much and he was way too charismatic that they wanted to save him for another movie. So they made him survive. I'm for it. I'm for it. Yeah, he was. He was a good, he was good. And it's nice that you have, you keep the twins together. This is like slasher logic where it's like Gail has been stabbed in the abdomen and Sydney's been stabbed in the abdomen and thrown off a staircase and Sam has been stabbed in the abdomen and they're all just like walking around (laughs) like they got a paper cut. Like this is where it's like slasher rules. Like it's like, okay, like I get it. But at the same time, it's like you all like don't have livers anymore. Like I don't understand how everyone's thinking like one stab to the abdomen is, you know, I don't get it. Like, it's Awful like, come on. To be like, Sydney's just texting on her phone, probably just checking, like, what the kids have for dinner. But you just got fucking stabbed <laughs> in the gut, lady. Like, what the fuck is going on? Like, you magical healing powers is this. I love it. Before I forget, back to the conversation we were having about Wes, based on what you said about the, I guess, the original idea that Tara and Amber might be romantically involved. In the very beginning of the movie, the way that Amber or Ghostface or whatever gets Tara to pick up the landline in the first place is by saying, is Wes bothering you again? Which immediately sort of establishes that perhaps there was a romantic connection between Wes and Tara. So maybe in the original script, one of the justifications for Wes being a part of that murder, in addition to his mom, would be that Amber might have been jealous of Wes or wanted him out of the picture if there was some sort of love connection. Not really relevant, but based on what you said, I just kind of had that thought and wanted to share it. Yeah, no, definitely. Because I just wish they would have established if there was a romantic connection, because that even makes sense with like an extra inhaler being at her house. You know what I mean? Like, it's there's just certain things that I'm like, well, why is she so intimately involved? 
I was almost afraid that they were going to turn it into like, I love Tara and I'm like this like unrequited lesbian like lover mm. when Tara's straight. I, I kind of almost thought I was going to go in that direction for half a second. I'm like, oh, please don't like, please don't make this like a crazy gay unrequited love turn to fury type of situation. But I mean, they didn't. And it could kind of prove that like why Tara never died. Like if they were romantically involved, it still could have fucking killed her because if you're tracking back as to who was where in the movie, Amber was the ghost face in the hospital because Richie was Mm -hmm. there. This is where I figured out Richie was the killer. Well, was at least a killer because when Dewey shot Amber four times, Richie kept looking back. Dewey was dragging Richie to the elevator and he kept looking back at ghost face. And you could make that as like, oh, like, is he going to come after us? But he kept like looking back like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Like that wasn't supposed to happen. Like all Uh that kind of stuff. So that's when I figured out, okay, Richie's a killer because he's checking to make sure that like the other person's okay. Like that's how I read it. And I could have been wrong, but I wasn't wrong. It's still like a little believable to me that if they were romantically involved, like she could have killed her off a lot sooner than she did in that hallway, but like maybe didn't want to. I don't know. Right. I mean, it's an interesting movie that I felt like left me with a lot of questions, but I don't really feel like all the questions are necessarily bad, just more kind of like motivation thinking about these killers. Cause they're both new characters that we met this movie and you know, what was going on there. I don't know. Still enough of like a plot twist that I was pleased, but also I guess I didn't love who the killers were. And I mentioned this to you because I called you after I saw the movie and was like, what the fuck? There were those rumors about Stu not actually being shown as dead. So maybe he'd come back or some version of him would come back. Or maybe the killers would be trying to avenge him in some way because he's the forgotten partner of Billy Loomis, who's the more credited killer, which we see in the opening scene too. But it wasn't that. And I was, I kind of wanted it to be that. But having seen it and sat with it, it's fine. Like it was a good movie and I really liked it. It was made for the fans <laughs> featuring fans as killers. <laughs> so yeah, pretty right. Wild. And just as a, like a reminder, like obviously Billy and Stu were partners in the first movie. They were both the killers. Stu is not canonically dead because what ends up happening to Stu in the movie is that I don't know if it's Sydney or somebody ends up pushing a large television set onto Stu's head and he ends up getting electrocuted. But You know, in the Scream universe, unless you're shot in the head, you're not canonically dead, which is also like one of my favorite Easter eggs, which we didn't even mention. Some of our, or at least my favorite YouTubers, Dead Meat, make a cameo in this movie. They are movie bloggers that are complaining about the Stab series. And it's seen for a few seconds on Richie's computer during one of the scenes. But one of the Easter eggs is on the recommended viewing aisle of YouTube. It's like interview with survivor Kirby from the Woodsboro massacres. And Kirby is somebody who got stabbed in the gut. It's Hayden Panettiere. She's in the fourth one. She gets stabbed multiple times, but we never knew if she was canonically dead. And we knew that Wes Craven wanted her to live because they wanted her to come back at some point, but they didn't bring her back in this movie. But she is now canonically alive because of that like little YouTube Easter egg that was off to the side, which if you weren't looking, you would have missed it. So there's certain things where it's like, okay, because with these rules, you're not canonically dead really, unless you know, mm-hmm. you're in a body bag or you're shot in the head. Cause I don't want people to think that because Stewie didn't get shot in the head, that he's not dead. Stewie's dead. Oh but yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I wanted Richie to be related to Stu so bad. Like I wanted yeah. Richie because they even look alike. So I wanted Richie Mm -hmm. to be like Stu's nephew or Stu's somebody. 
I wanted it to be like, Stu was the creative genius and Billy was the muscle and he was always forgotten about. So I'm here to avenge him. But I think they're saving him. I think they're saving Stu. Yeah. Okay. I think they're going to bring Stu back. That's just my personal Mm -hmm. opinion. And also, I was thinking about this earlier. They have already kind of outdone the family vengeance connection story, you know, because it's like you have Billy Loomis's mother, who was one of the killers in the second one, who's like, you killed my son, so I'm going to kill you. And you also have Roman, who is the killer in the third one. He's like, you know, you're the sister who got all the attention and I'm Maureen's other son and I got the shit under the stick and I had a bad life and this is your fault. And then the fourth (laughs) one was Jill Emma Roberts being like, I'm your niece and you always got all the attention growing up and I want to have my moment in the spotlight. I'm tired of just being the niece of Sydney Prescott. I want to be Jill Roberts, blah, 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 blah. So if in the fifth movie, they had done some sort of weird family vengeance, it would have been tired. And I didn't think about that until right. today. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah, the movie ends with Sam getting in the hospital with Tara and a wide shot very similar to how the first one ends of like cops and paramedics walking Mm. through the mocker house. And that's how it ends. So I think it definitely opens it up for more, for more movies. And I certainly hope it does, but you know, like Elise and I were saying earlier, it's gotten amazing reviews. There are so many Easter eggs that I have not even mentioned. And I, you know, won't for the sake of time, just because there are like, you really need to be like in with the first four movies to like, know what I'm talking about. And like, but there's a lot of YouTube videos out there. I'm going to plug a YouTube video right now by one of my favorite horror YouTubers. And his name is Zach Cherry. And he has, I'll link it in um, the show notes, but it's a video called the full plot breakdown of screen 2022 plus Easter eggs. And he has, it's like an hour long YouTube video of him walking through the plot of the screen movie, retelling it, but also pointing out every Easter egg that he saw along the way. And this guy is a super fan. Like he has such comprehensive videos where he actually has videos on his YouTube channel of like which killer killed who in each movie. So like how in every single movie, there's almost two ghost face except for Scream 3. It's like how that one person was able to kill the other one while the other person was like still in the storyline or like, and he Mm -hmm. even has a video mapping out the Casey Becker kill in the first movie and talking about who was Stu and who was Billy and how they were able to be in two places at once. And like he maps out the entire fucking scene. Like he is such a Scream super fan and it's so good. I'll link his videos down below, but like, He's one of my favorites in terms of Scream content. And I've had so much fun just watching his content the past couple of weeks leading up to this. And then obviously after this, it's just really nerdy and informative. That's awesome. Well, there you have it. it. (laughs) We did it. And let us know if you want us to cover more stuff that's out in the theaters. Obviously, COVID was kind of like holding us on a little bit of a chokehold and not really letting us going out and see new things. But if you like us covering things that are like hot off the presses, let us know and we'll try to do more. Yeah, absolutely. And you can give us feedback, any sort of feedback in that realm or beyond. If you email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com, or if you find us on Instagram, also at thehorrorspodcast. 
And you know, we post updates about episodes. And if you listen regularly, you know that we don't. We, I think obviously we've been like releasing every two to three weeks, so we don't have like a set schedule. So following us on Instagram is a good way to keep up with when we're releasing things because there will always be a post if we are. Sometimes we have surveys, other sorts of updates, things going on. Like when we were working with Quim City Productions, we had some updates about that. So always a good place to keep up with what we're doing on this tiny little podcast. (laughs) But until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye.